You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a show that discusses internal and relational anxiety, how it blocks effective leadership, and how we can move through it to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. And we're in season two. Hey, last season we launched this podcast with the goal of helping bring relief to people by offering tools to help you notice and name what's happening under the surface in you and in those you lead. We also wanted to bring relief by interviewing guests and hearing from our guests both what makes them anxious, what they do when they don't know what to do, and how they manage their anxiety. And we had some fantastic guests in Season 1. And here in Season 2, we already have a full slate of guests booked. And just like last year, Brendan and I will hop on the microphones once in a while and dive deeper into a specific tool or a specific source of anxiety to hopefully help you out. And hey, before we go on, I have a favor to ask for everybody. I have a pretty small social media footprint, and if this podcast has helped you out, you could help us out by retweeting an episode or sharing it on Facebook or on Instagram, or by leaving an honest review on iTunes. And if you tag me, that would help us keep track of it too. I'm on Facebook under my name, Steve Cuss. Instagram and Twitter, I'm at Steve Cusswords. And I know a lot of podcasts ask you to do this, but the fact is it doesn't take long and it actually makes a huge difference to help us reach more people who might benefit, especially podcasts that are just getting started like ours with people who have a smaller social media footprint like me. So I really appreciate you taking a minute or so to help us out. Okay, I was 24 years old when I was first exposed to systems theory, also known as Bowen theory. When I served as a hospital chaplain, one of my supervisors was a systems guy. In fact, he actually studied under Murray Bowen, who was the founder of the whole thing. And his fellow classmate was Ed Friedman, for those of you who know that name. So I studied both of those guys. And then when I went to grad school, I went on to study cybernetics and second order change. And we focused on how problems are formed and how problems are resolved and how to figure out who's motivated to change and who isn't. And the whole thing was in the context of counseling theory, but I found it invaluable in leadership and even in parenting as well. So this season, season two, we'll dive a bit deeper into systems theory. A few months ago, I came across an article by Chuck DeGroat on internal family systems theory. So I asked Chuck to come on my show, and he's our guest today here in episode one. Chuck's the professor of counseling and Christian spirituality, at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He's also the co-founder and senior fellow at the Newbigin House of Studies in San Francisco. Chuck's an amazing guy. He's a counselor, a spiritual director. Chuck's a pastor and a professor and also an author. And he focuses most of his attention and work on the intersection of psychology, theology, and Christian spirituality. And uh, he's just a fantastic resource for all of us. His most recent book is Wholeheartedness, where he dives into perfectionism and shame, and he's currently preparing a book on dealing with narcissists. So, yep, Chuck's a guy worth listening to, and I was grateful to sit down with him and talk about internal family systems. I started out by asking him to explain what exactly that is. Yeah, so internal family systems is really, really fascinating. I came across it in, I want to say, 2004, 2005. Um, I was doing some adjunct work at a seminary down in Orlando, and I found a, uh, a VCR tape with Richard Schwartz, the founder of Internal Family Systems. And, uh, you know, I, 
I Schwartz introduces you and I to the complexity of the human soul that we are um, both a true self, uh, and he he doesn't come at this from a sort of a Christian perspective, but but he'd say there's a true self, there's there's a self that anchors us, and then there are selves around that self. There are parts of us that are uh, are develop as ways of coping with life. And so he says there are really like three sets of these cells. There are managers, uh, there are exiles, and there are firefighters. And each one of these, and we could talk more about these three sets of parts within us, uh, help us manage life uh, in the midst of the brokenness and the woundedness and the pain and abuse that we all experience. Okay, yeah, that's great. So let's get into those three. You said it was managers, firefighters, and sorry, what was the third one? Yeah, exiles. Exiles. Yeah, would yeah. you mind saying a little bit about each of those? Yeah. So, what uh, Schwartz was was taking this from uh, some theory that was out there uh, on sub personalities. Uh, this idea that there are um, it, it, the simplest way of putting it is is like this: I woke up this morning, and there's a part of me that wanted to get up and get going for the day, and there's another part of me that just wanted to lay in bed forever. <laughs> You know, <laughs> yeah. so there are at least two parts of me this morning. Um, but but as we begin to identify these different parts of us that perhaps um, like to do one thing and, you know, another part resists it on the other side, um, we, we begin to realize that there are parts of us that are more managerial. They protect us from pain. There are the parts of us that, uh, you know, anticipate a hard conversation and, uh draw upon re- resistances within us, you know? And so when I think uh, about managerial kinds of parts, I think of, uh, I always tell the story of when I first got here to the seminary and I'd been a pastor and a therapist. Now I'm on a seminary faculty with folks who graduated from Harvard and Princeton and Duke, and I don't have a PhD that is nearly that prestigious. And so for the first uh, for the first period of time, a humorous part of me kind of took over, and I would just be the funny guy in faculty meetings. And and then for a little while there, I think a more qu- kind of quiet, self protective part of me took over, and I would just shut up and I wouldn't say a thing because I was fearful of what they'd think if I opened my mouth. And then there was another part of me that thought, well, I I uh, I could come up with something really brilliant. And so I'd save, you know, a really brilliant line that I would deliver, you know, at the right moment. These are just, this is kind of a simple way, maybe too simplistic way of talking about these parts of us that protect us. Now, what were they protecting me from? They were protecting me from shame. Um, I I didn't feel like I was quite enough. Uh, I didn't have the sense that I belonged in on this prestigious faculty. And so they were protecting me from shame and anxiety, and, and those are exiles. Uh, uh, when Schwartz talks about exiles, these are the parts of us that uh, feel really young, uh, that, uh, that we're not prone to want to show to others or talk about very much, um, maybe just to a few people, but we're not likely to talk, not likely to talk about my most ashamed parts with uh, you know, with someone that I meet on the street. Um, now, what Schwartz says is that when we're threatened, when the, our system is threatened in a significant kind of way, and there's a risk of profound shame, uh, uh, a, a firefighter will will come into play, and a firefighter will douse the fire. 
of, of vulnerability, of shame, of risk, of the risk of being exposed. And firefighters can look like parts of us that are um, addictive. And so I, I don't want to feel that. So I will, uh, I will drink too much or I will uh, abuse pornography or, you know, so the firefighters are parts of us that really try to douse the, the flames of, of exposure, the fear of exposure, shame. And so those are the three main parts that IFS talks about. That's fantastic. Thank you so yeah. much. So obviously you have been sitting with this for what, 14 years now? Did you say 2004 was when you first? Four or five. Yeah, right around there. Yeah. yeah. And you've done doctoral level work on it. Let's, uh, I, I feel like what you just laid out was just a great overview of what it is. For a leader that wants to dig in a little deeper in themselves, how do they begin to recognize one of these three inside them? Yeah, that's a good question. I, when I started getting into this, I realized uh, I could go on one or two paths. I'll talk about it a little bit more generally first, and I'll, I'll be a bit more specific. But um, I, I could educate myself and read all the books on internal family systems, or I could see a, a therapist. And I decided to, to see a therapist that had a specialization in internal family systems. And, and I would just generally recommend uh, folks to do that kind of work. Now, the great thing is that with internal family systems, it's, uh, it's work that you can do on your own. Um, and, in, and in fact, uh, all you have to do is begin to ask yourself, well, what's going on inside of me right now? Um, where, I love the question from Genesis chapter 3, where are you? You know, God goes looking for Adam and Eve, and they're in hiding, and God asks, where are you? And as I sit here right now, well, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I want to be present to, the, to you and uh, to this conversation, but there's a part of me thinking about uh, the sermon that I have to preach on Sunday morning, you know, so there's a part of me that's thinking about that right now. Uh, there's a part of me that's a little bit anxious about a hard conversation that I need to have. Um, there's a little part of me that's uh, um, uh, wrestling with anxiety about my daughter going to college next year and some of the anxiety she's having right now. So I'm here, but I might be in several different places right now. And that's always just a very simple way of beginning to identify the different parts of you that might be active and alive. And there are probably more parts to you that are not you know, just not, not quite as awake right now as others. Okay. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. So, so some, the, one of the challenges is our listeners are all over the spectrum. Some people are, uh, this is the first time they've really started to pay attention to self, you know, they're sure. just, they go, go, go. And, but others of our listeners, I would say are quite far along in their awareness of anxiety or systems. Right. Or, um, could you just give us a tool or two when you start to notice, I guess what you just described as like your divided self or your distracted yeah. self, how do you begin to integrate back into wholeness in the moment? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, it's, uh, I always think that it's some sort of com combination of awareness and intentionality. Um, we've got to be aware enough to, uh, to catch ourselves, um, and and what I mean by catch ourselves is, is recognize that we're not we're not in the present moment that I'm not um, altogether here right now, and so um, I, I, I none of us lives in the present moment a hundred percent of the time, right? 
but uh, it's, it's when we find ourselves being pulled away from the present moment or distracted or anxious. So, so what I try to teach people and what I try to practice myself is to notice uh, what's happening in your body, to notice your feelings, to notice particular triggers that rise up. And so, you know, I might be very present in a conversation with, uh, with uh, my academic dean here at the seminary. And then he might say, well, I've got something uh, kind of difficult that I need to share with you about a course evaluation, Chuck. <laughs> and then, you know, at that moment, any number of things can begin to happen. There might be some anxiety that wells up in me that I need to pay attention to. There might be some anger. Uh, there may be some resistance. I may want to run out of the room at that very moment. So at that point, I'm aware that uh, a number of different parts of me were just triggered. And I think part of it is 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 uh, maybe a simple way of saying it is I like to imagine that these parts are, are are in an inner living room within me, and it's it's like whispering to them, "Okay, I see you, I see you, anxious part of me, I see you, angry part of me, I see you, um, uh, avoidant part of me, you know, whatever you want to call them, uh, I see you, and it's okay, and I'm here, and Jesus is here." And we'll be okay. And that's just a sort of a, a way of, of uh, much like I talk to maybe one of my daughters who's feeling anxious. It's going to be okay. I'm right here. Um, and uh, as you, the interesting thing about internal family systems, and I found this to be true in my own work, is as you speak to these different parts of you, um, they they tend to listen and relax. And so uh, it's a combination of being aware and being intentional about engaging these different parts in the moment. Okay. So I'm still early in my podcasting experience and my producer right. my right. producer is telling me you have to stop saying at the end that's so good but that is so good. That was <laughs> I feel like that's so helpful. So if if I'm hearing you right Chuck, uh you're saying that if you can learn to name the different parts of yourself and actually address them like so, you, you even just inferred in, in that in your living room metaphor. Right, you're actually right. pretty pretty aware of the different parts of yourself that show up and what they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I was flying out to Denver on Monday, and uh, it was about a two and a half hour flight from here, and I had some work to do, but then I had some downtime, and I just wanted to sort of be quiet, pay attention, and uh, I noticed during that time uh, that. I started feeling uh, a deep loneliness within me. And, and this is just, this is just sort of, uh, I'm trying to uh, say this for listeners who might, uh, might not have any psychological education whatsoever, never read about this or not familiar at all. Fantastic. So then the question is, what do I do with that? You know, I feel really lonely right now. Well, I, I could say, um, flight attendant, can you bring over a couple of bourbons, <laughs> you know, um, or I can just pull out a book. Uh, this is, feels really uncomfortable. You know, I'll just pull out a book and read and distract myself or jump back on my laptop or talk to the person next to me. Well, no, instead, I, I decided to sit and just pay attention to this loneliness and, and engage, in a sense, engage in a conversation with it, um, with this, this part of me. Now, that probably sounds weird to some of your listeners, and I wouldn't expect that many would really understand at first what that feels like or looks like. But I just sort of said, well, tell me, tell me what you're feeling. And, um, and I won't tell you all about that conversation right now. I don't think everyone wants to, to hear about my loneliness, but, um, <laughs> but I, I discovered that, that there was 
that there was something going on with me, within me that I maybe wasn't as familiar with even the day before. And then the question was, well, how do I hold this part of me and continue in conversation? Um, it's as simple as that. It's as simple as attentiveness to what's going on within you. Great. Okay. So with internal family systems, these, the manager, the firefighter, the exile, right. Um, it's, it's one thing to start to pay attention to who else is in the living room and how to name your own triggers. How important is it for a leader or someone who's interested in this to figure out when's the manager showing up, when's the exile showing up? Yeah. Yeah. So once, once you get into this work and start doing it in earnest, um, that becomes pretty intuitive Okay. Um, because you recognize that uh, you don't even need the labels anymore, really. You recognize that there are just these these protective parts of yourself that uh, keep you from from feeling pain, keep you uh, disconnected. Uh, and, 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 by the way, it, that's not always bad, right? That's that can be really important for us, and is very important for us to sort of get through life. And so, it's not a matter of judging these protective parts of you; just recognizing that they show up for a reason. And so when I'm in a conversation with my colleagues and like ac my academic part shows up and I'm, I'm trying really, really hard to be smart, you know, and thoughtful in the conversation that I, I simply, I simply recognize that that's a protective part of me and it's protect. So I don't need a label necessarily. I don't need to say, Oh, manager. Boom. Yeah. Okay. Um, it's just pretty, but, but then, then I'm aware also that it's protecting me from that vulnerable feeling of being, ashamed in front of my colleagues, feeling like I'm deficient, you know? And so again, I don't need to necessarily label it exile, but I recognize that, oh, wow, that is a very powerful feeling of, 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 of really not being enough in the conversation right now. And that stings a little bit. Oh, that's great. Uh, yeah. It's almost yeah. like the three labels or categories are almost like a, a door to a new conduit. Yeah. 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 That's right. Okay. Yeah. Like, so people who teach the Enneagram, I've heard them say, you know, at first you get your Enneagram number and even the stop sign has its own number, you know, you see it everywhere, <laughs> but over time it starts to fade to the back of your mind. It sounds similar yeah. to this where you start with these three categories. They're extremely helpful, but then eventually right. they're just providing an avenue for you, for you to be able to name specifics. That's, that's it. Yeah. And, um, and I think what ends up happening is you're just aware that there are, it, you become, it's like mapping your internal world, you know, and, and you, you have sort of this inner geography, right? And you begin to have um, put, put names to the different um, ways that you cope. And, and as you do this kind of work, you're just, it, you're growing in self-awareness. And you're, I think for me, it's like you're less apt to, uh, fall back into those patterns uh, next time. And so e even as I show up for a faculty meeting now five years later, I'm aware of what's going on inside. I'm, I'm less apt to be the funny guy or the academic guy or the avoidant guy, but just sim simply to be present and maybe even risk. I think wholeness in a sense is, you know, bringing, bringing all these different parts of you to the table. And so I can, I can bring something academic or I can make a joke, but it's not out of a self-protective place. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. It's not that you now show up as a dullard. You're still, right, right, right. yeah, you're still witty and sharp, but it's right. cu coming from a more true place. I think is what you're saying. That's right. Yeah, That's and I'm, I'm guessing you're also suggesting it's never purely a true place or purely your false self. 
Yeah, right. And and this is where it's. Uh, I think if you get in your head too much about this stuff, you're you're gonna, you know, you're you're just gonna be burdened by all sorts of self judgment and anxiety. Am I in my false self right now? Am I am I my true self? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, we, we have to recognize that we're all always kind of in that mix, and it's okay. I, I would like uh, to hear a word from you on that, Chuck. I, I found in the materials that I teach, uh, I tend to be pretty quick to forgive myself. I, it's just my personality. I'm high mm. risk, so I'm therefore, I found that if I'm going to be high risk, I have to be able to forgive myself for stupid mistakes. Mm. But I've got some people that facilitate my material with me, and one of them particularly is is a perfectionist uh enneagram one you know yeah yeah and he has helped me to see that once you start getting into this world somebody like him then it just can become a um another fresh way to beat himself up uh, yeah. and and the phrase that we've learned to teach our students is this the the curse of um you should know better by now what, what would you say to someone they're diving into internal family systems, they're finding some of this helpful, but it's going to yeah. take a while, right? Before they, yeah. how would you help them yeah. have grace for themselves? Yeah. So take the Enneagram one friend of yours. I mean, he's, he, uh, as you know, as a result of his own story, you know, his upbringing, the wounds of his life, um, uh, his, you know, his, his, family of origin, you know, all these kinds of things, he's, he's become perfectionistic and maybe, uh, in that pretty self-critical, uh, that's, that's work that we, we, we do in internal family systems, right? Um, his inner critic or his perfectionist is going to be a lot more dominant in his in, internal system than yours might be. Yeah. You, you probably have a little bit of a perfectionist inside you or an inner critic, but it's, it's just not as loud. And so, um, I, I'm forgetting your original question, but I, I guess real quickly, it's it's about then, you know, doing the work of paying attention to the role that 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 perfectionistic part plays. And and what I find really fun about this work is each one of these parts holds a, a different um, element of your story. And so when we begin to interact with that perfect perfectionistic part, that perfectionistic part has a story to tell, and maybe that story is about how critical mom was uh, when I was a little boy um, or, or how dad said you're a failure at a very significant moment. Um, and so as we begin to, to learn about these different parts, uh, they can, we can then uh, offer some, amount, uh, some healing or transformation of the parts. Mm. Yeah, that's yeah. good. And actually, e even as you're speaking, I'm thinking, you know, one of the reasons I'm quick to forgive myself is so that someone else can't condemn me. I can kind of yeah. manage it myself and get it over with, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so I think heavily related to this, right? You wrote this book, Wholeheartedness. Right. Um, I'm just looking, you know, busyness, exhaustion, and healing the divided self. I mean, right. the subtitle alone has to right. make people want to buy it. I um, hope so. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> Um, the thing that I found intriguing about it, Chuck, is is you said more downtime and more rest is not automatically the answer. <clears throat> yeah. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, well, yeah, I think there's this myth that we can somehow control it, figure it out, find that perfect work-life balance, right? And that often has to do with – well, 
to, to get back to internal family systems, that may just be a part of us that thinks it can achieve rest, you know? Uh, um, and, and I think that as I've, as I've interacted with people on this, uh, what you what you kind of get is uh, kind of a common example that I like to talk about is is the guy that works really hard throughout the week and then he's at that TGIF moment and you know he works hard and now he's going to like rest hard and so you know he drinks six beers on the couch on a Saturday afternoon watching football and uh, you know another eight beers on Sunday watching some more football and he wonders why he's not rested you know going back to work on a on a Monday morning. Um, I think rest is sort of maybe a little bit more elusive than that, you know, and when we talk about wholeheartedness, um, we're talking about a much more integrated life, so much so that um, we're we're engaging in practices that allow us to live from a place of, of integration, to live from center, even in the midst of our work. Um, And so there isn't like rest time and work time, it's something far more integrated, I guess. Okay, more of a, a constant rhythm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. And so we we engage in practices that allow us to to live from our center. I think that's that's it. When I talk about wholeheartedness, I I want I want us to live from our center. Yeah. Um. I often define it as a place of oneness and worthiness in Jesus. Right. Like live from a very centered place, so that. Um, so that when I'm done with this conversation with you, I'm not like, wow, that was exhausting. You know, I need a nap now, but, but that I'm coming from a place of, of wholeness, even in a conversation like this. Yeah. You, you actually write about, um, if I, if I recall, uh, we all at the same time hide and are hidden in Christ. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like to talk about it as another way of saying it is we all live in two dances, the dance of intimacy and the dance of hiddenness. And um, intimacy is what we're made for. We're made for relationship, for vulnerability, for connection. And and yet, uh, you know, those managers, those protectors that we were just talking about, they they say, ah, oh, it's too scary, it's too risky. Hide, protect yourself. Uh, danger, danger, danger. And and I think if we're aware of that, and if we live life from a place of awareness, from our center, from a place of what I call wholeheartedness. Uh, we're just more apt. I'm I'm more apt to walk out my door after this conversation is over, um, not into a firestorm, not into a world that just feels scary and risky, but with a, a, a new sense of maybe presence and confidence that even if a hard thing happens, even if even if my dean calls me in and says, Chuck, I need to have a conversation, it's okay because I'm I'm held in a deep place um by God. You know, so that's that idea of being hidden in Christ. I'm in union with God. So I'm held in a way that allows me to, to navigate all the different contingencies of life. Yeah. 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 You talk about people who want to flee Egypt for the promised land. Mm-hmm. They don't, they don't want to walk through the wilderness. They want to take a plane flight over the wilderness. Yeah, right. That's right. So for yeah. people who, I don't know, for people who uh, are not experienced at sitting in pain, uh, what are a couple of tools that you offer to hike through the wilderness rather than get on that plane? Yeah. Well, I love that metaphor because it's, uh, you know, it's, it's the Exodus story, right? And uh, we're all on, on this journey of life and, and we all want to avoid suffering. But I think, 
I think there is this invitation to 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 walk with Jesus through the wilderness of our lives, through the suffering of our lives, to see it as as important and um, and vital for our own healing. I don't I don't think that that means though. Um, you know, d- diving headlong into the furnace, into the hardest things. You know, I I do think that uh, the I, the gift of internal family systems for me has been recognizing that I I simply need to s- sort of be aware of of the emotion of of the moment. You know, mm-hmm. and um, it, it, there are inner resources to allow me to, in the midst of that loneliness I was experiencing on Monday, for you know, from that place of true self where God is most present for, for God to show up, for Jesus to show up in a way that uh, allows me to hold the lonely parts of me, you know? And so, so it's almost like, um, and and this may be confusing for people who are not familiar with this system, but it's, it's really an invitation for God to be far more present to you in the midst of your pain than maybe you've ever experienced God before. And so God's holding you in the midst of your loneliness, loneliness or your anxiety or your shame. And that that allows you to sort of um, sit with the pain, um, but it doesn't overwhelm you, if that makes sense. So it also sounds yeah. like if I'm hearing you right, that then also gives you the opportunity to receive a more deep experience of God's grace than ever before. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. But it's not a you know, I, I think I grew up in a very like intellectual and cognitive tradition of the faith where uh, all of this was th- theology, but it, it wasn't really translated into a an inner experience, you know. And when you recognize, you know, St. Augustine once said, God is more near to me than I am to myself. And this reality that God is is dwelling within me by the Spirit and is so hospitable to every part of me, you know, is, is not at all scared of my anger, you know, even my rage is not at all scared of that loneliness that I was feeling on Monday, but, but delights to be present to every part of me. That's a very different way of living. And it's not just an intellectual reminder. It's a, it's a real sense of I'm not alone right now. God is holding my loneliness. Uh, I, I knew, Chuck, when I was going to interview you, that there'd be uh, more topics than time. I, yeah. Before I uh, run you through my gauntlet of questions for every guest, I do just want to touch on narcissism. You've been sure. blogging lately on narcissism, and unfortunately, yeah. in my line of work, I'm a pastor, um, many, like there's something about the pulpit and the modern church and the way that we run the modern church that I think either creates or fuels narcissists or at least maybe a fairer way to say it is narcissistic tendencies right what would you like to just say to any leader particularly church leaders about narcissism yeah this has been this has been a harder book to write just because the topic is is a painful one and we're recognizing you know there's a surprising lack of of work and study and research done on this and pastors uh a recent canadian study says that pastors are uh, uh, diagnosed at 400 to 500% um, higher rates of narcissist, uh, the personality disorder, not just the spectrum, but narcissistic personality disorder more than the, the average population. 
and you know a part of it is like who 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 would want to speak on behalf of god you know um with that kind of authority you know um as a pastor i say this is the word of the lord right and so there is a sense in which uh in our in our world uh we are on stage speaking on behalf of god and you know who there are there are a relative few that want to do that um and I, I think we can do that from a deeply humble place, but I but I think that there are some who are drawn to the stage, you know, and you see higher rates of narcissism, of course, among politicians and lawyers and actors, you know. But sadly, you see it among pastors as well, and and I think in part because um, because we are speaking with with great authority um, uh, um, in, in front of people. And it takes a certain kind of person to do that. So yeah, and surely one of the challenges of narcissism is it's typically the symptom, or maybe symptoms not the right word, but complete lack of self awareness is one of the yeah issues. So right. how does a pastor pay attention to that? That that's exactly it, and that that's the hard thing. When I do psychological testing with pastors. Uh, and they show up on the narcissistic spectrum or a narcissistic personality disorder. That's the first thing I'm looking for is how do they respond? Are they aware enough to say, oh, wow, that's so is there curiosity? Okay. Um, is that, you know, is that in, uh, tell me more about that, Chuck. Um, or that's, wow, that's disturbing to hear. Um, what can I do? You know, I, I, that's what I want to look for. And so what I invite pastors to is, is curiosity. Um, are you willing to, to ask the question of another, how do you experience me? And, and hear what they say, really hear what they say, even if it's hard, you know, I experience you as arrogant at times, um, or you lack empathy in our conversations. Are, are you willing to lean into that kind of hard conversation? Okay. That's so helpful. So, yeah. uh, I just recently interviewed a good friend of mine, Jay Pathak. He's a pastor in town. Okay. He's got a lot of family systems work under his belt. And um, three times a year, his key staff get in a room, big whiteboard. Jay always goes first, you know, mm. and two questions. What is my best contribution to this team? Not mm. what am I good at, what are my skills, but just how do I show up? And then yeah. what, what do you all want me to know about my negative impact? And they all go mm. around and share together. And I, that's a great I tool. I love that. Yeah. I love that. That's okay. so courageous. Yes. Yeah. And of course, Jay goes first, you know, as the yeah. lead pastor and everyone speaks frankly to him and they go around. Wow. It's, it's yeah. fantastic. We need but, more of that. Yes, we do. Yeah. 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 Okay, Chuck. So I ask uh, my question, uh, my guests, same set of questions. I just find yeah. it helpful for our listeners. And some of the, I'm, I'm adjusting on the fly because some of the questions you just naturally addressed oh, good. Uh, okay. in the way you showed up. But yeah. uh, we found it helpful for people who are getting a start on this material to to learn to pay attention to anxiety. What what we've noticed in some of our listeners already is uh, they they wouldn't call it anxiety. You know, they would call it energy or something else. Sure. So one of the questions we ask all our guests is, where does anxiety start for you physiologically? Is it a a uh, racing mind, a spinning heart. Sorry, I always get this wrong. I've been asking this question for weeks. <laughs> is yeah. it a spinning mind? Is it a racing heart, or is it a tightening gut? And and uh, often yeah. oftentimes it shows up in all three. But does it begin yeah. in one place for you? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, my my initial 
sense of that as I pay attention to my body is that it's it's in this part of me, right? Um, in the chest, I feel it in my throat, my okay. chest, right? That's yeah. that's kind of where I I feel it the most. Uh, the beating heart, the sort of the racing heart. Um, and as you said, um, I can have some you know gut feelings around that, and I can have the racing thoughts. But um, when I start to feel anxiety, it's all it's all in here first. Upper chest. Okay, yeah. great. Okay. And then, um, would you be willing to share a recent mistake you've made and how you recovered from it? Oh, great question. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I can choose from a, a lot. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Great. Um, yeah. So I think, uh, related to anxiety, um, I'll talk about my uh, my relationship with my high school daughter for just a moment. Um, she'll probably never listen to this, but um, <laughs> she was having a really hard morning, and uh, she's in her senior year. And at times, she has a kind of immobilizing anxiety where she just can't get going, and uh, she's overwhelmed. And um, in the midst of that, I think that I can be um, – come on, let's go. You need to get going. You need to get to school. We need to get out of the door on time. Your, you know, your sister needs a ride to school and I'll push. Right. And I think that, uh, what I recognize, uh, shortly after that, after things de-escalate a little bit is that, uh, I'm just scared. I'm, you know, and I, I told my daughter that as we sat down and kind of processed that situation that, um, I just felt really anxious that morning. Um, there's a part of me that that fears that this immobilization is something that is more than situational, and that it's gonna it's gonna plague her. Um, I I I worry about her going away to college and not having um, my wife Sarah and I around to to hold her in the midst of her anxiety. And it just really helped her to hear that her dad was scared and not mad at her, but it felt like to her like I was mad at her. Um, at first, right? Yeah. When I was kind of trying to push her to get going and um, almost like, what's wrong with you? Come on, let's go. Yeah. yeah. So, well, it, and for, for you to offer a gift to your daughter of reframing what f your anxiety showed up as anger and for you to reframe it back to her as fear, that's an incredible gift. Yeah. We've spent most of our time because of your specialty in internal anxiety. Yeah. But you also are a leader. You've you've done pastoral work. You're you're an academic leader. Let's talk about group anxiety. Where's the yeah. situation in your life where you have seen anxiety be contagious? Where people catch anxiety the way you catch a cold? Oh, so many, so many examples. Uh, yeah. So I've been uh, I, I've I've served in churches and organizations in Orlando and in San Francisco and here, and I'm always, uh, now I'm in a seminary setting here, I'm always aware of anxiety and systems, right? Um, there's a kind of uh, institutional anxiety that's unique to each and every system. And um, I'm sorry, just ask the question one more time so that I know what to hone in on. No, this is great. Yeah. yeah. where have What's the situation where you've seen anxiety be contagious, where yeah. pe people catch it the way you catch a cold? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, I think this is okay to talk about because I, I think uh, I think it's a public conversation to some degree. We're in the midst of a leadership transition at the seminary that we're in right now, and um, uh, it, 
so our president, longtime president, who has been a great leader and uh, has raised millions and millions of dollars for the seminary, is retiring, and and so uh, there is anxiety in the system. And uh, you know, we're uh, there are a bunch of Christian academics around here who are not used to talking about emotions, uh, you know, that quickly. And so, <clears throat> I think sometimes I I I can overfunction in systems like this and try to manage the anxiety or, you know, in my best days, try to be the non-anxious presence. But, but I've, I've noticed that within the last year or so, um, in part because of this transition in par- part because of other organizational institutional kinds of things, um, in, in group conversations or faculty meetings, staff meetings, people are just a l- little bit more testy, a little bit more anxious, a little bit more, uh, maybe a little angry at times or a little distant at other times. And I, I think, um, I, I think that's pretty normal. This is what happens in, in leadership transitions, but, but it's as, as, uh, as you say, people are sort of catching it, you know, people are feeling it and then they're triangulating and, you know, kind of sharing it in small groups with others and talking about it. You know, what are we going to do? What's going to happen? Who are they going to pick? Is it going to be the right kind of leader for us? You know how this thing, you know, and now, now we're, we're talking in smaller groups and do you think they're feeling this or what, what do you, what kind of leader do you think they want? Uh, I want this kind of leader. They want that kind of leader. And so it just catches. Fantastic. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. We have two more questions. Sure. Uh, this one's the most personal. It's also my favorite. Uh, when in your life do you feel most fully loved? Hmm. Great question. I, I, you know, I think I feel it. I, pra- I practice contemplative prayer and that has become a really important practice over the last 20 years or so. And I, I practice it in fits and starts. So it's not like I'm some sort of, you know, Zen contemplative that can sit for hours and hours. I think I really struggle because I've got a very anxious inner life. And so I often say that in a 20 minute contemplative prayer session, my first 18 and a half minutes are frenzied. And then maybe I settle down for a minute and a half. But I think it's in that space. I mean, you, you might be able to see it on the wall as where we can see each other oh, right now, but I've got Rem, Rembrandt's yeah. uh, Return of the Prodigal Son. Yes, you do. Yeah. And that's that's become a really important image for me. And I think in contemplative prayer and the stillness and silence of contemplative prayer, if I can relax and surrender in that space, um, I, I describe it as um, we're able to just sort of fall into God's goodness. We're able to fall into God's arms. I relax all of these anxious, controlling parts of me, and I'm able to just sort of relax into love. And um, I love that line from the hymn, Ocean Depths of God's Love, you know, because it's like you're falling into the ocean of God's love, and you're held in a way that um, I, I don't care how great your marriage is, you're held in a way, um, you know, far more deeply by God than you are by any human being, you know? And so um, Sarah and I will be married 25 years this year, and I experienced deep connection to Sarah, but I think um, there is this infinite, uh, infinitely available connection in God that I think uh, if we t- over-intellectualize the faith, we don't experience, you know, and so contemplative prayer has been that space for me. Well, thank you for that answer. And yeah. I, I am also, since you pointed out that we're on uh, Zoom here, I'm going to also yeah. point out to our listeners, uh, Chuck is in his office. 
he has Rembrandt's Return of the Prodigal Son, what looks like a fairly large frame on his wall. What I love about Chuck's answer right now with contemplative prayer is he also has drop ceiling and fluorescent lights. You don't actually need to go to to the mountaintop or a monastery. Mm. You're describing those experiences right there in your office. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think... Uh, my friend just went on a pilgrimage. Uh, he he walked the the entire Camino, and um, I do think uh, this is not the case of my friend, but I do think that sometimes we think that we have to go somewhere special to to experience this, right? And and uh, that's where that line from Augustine has been so important. God is more near to me than I am to myself. You know, uh, that's good. Yeah. yeah, and for the record, I, if if I had a choice, I would prefer to connect with God in a CC than in fluorescent office, but still, yeah. you can do it either well, place. Hey, notice I don't have the flu- fluorescent lights on. They oh, never go well on. Played. That, I, well played. Yeah, okay. That's right. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, the last question is, um, what activities or places make you feel most fully human and alive? What, what do you do for fun? Yeah. Where do you go for fun? Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, I, I think my family is just just being with my family when we're together uh, and we're connecting in ways, you know, whether, whether we're playing games or having a serious conversation um, that's where I feel deep connection and aliveness in my soul. And so, I mean, the core of this is going to be relationship when, when I'm connected to other people in a meaningful kind of way um, I, I feel really alive. And so that can be around an activity um, uh, I, I lo- I'm a reader you see all the books in my office right now. And I, I love, um, I love, uh, contemplative spirituality. Um, and, uh, I would say my favorite 16th century reformer is St. Teresa of Avila. Um, you know, when people talk about John Calvin and Martin Luther, um, St. Teresa is my, my favorite. I love, uh, a sort of a, a deep drinker of the mystics. Um, and, and, um, uh, we, we love to travel, um, we, we love to, to, to go to, uh, well, so Sarah and I, um, Sarah and I, uh, our girls are old enough now for us to have a lot of time together. So first of all, we just love on the weekends to, to go and find new restaurants and eat out. We love good food. Um, we feel great delight with a great meal and a great conversation, but then we love to plan trips and we're trying to plan a trip this summer to maybe Switzerland if we can afford it. <laughs> right. Um, and that's just so much fun for us as a family to get away. And I, I realize those years are, um, you know, my, my oldest is going to go away to college. So those years are kind of behind us now more and more. But uh, we'll take the last few trips together as a family, I guess, in these next couple of years. So, For more resources and show notes from today's episode, go to managingleadershipanxiety.com or stevecusswords.com. They'll both take you to the same place. This episode has been a production of Brendan Reed and Steve Cuss.